Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Bobcast. With you, as always, is Bob, here, live in the lounge, staring at that Ouija board. Watch out, ladies and gentlemen. May 29th, at Whole Foods in Plymouth Meeting, up there on the rooftop, the Blue Root Taco Truck. We're going to have a live Bobcast with special guests, DJ Wendell, Gorgeous Porch, Pocket Dial, and Montage. That's right, things kick off at 9 p.m. up on the roof. Tickets will be $7. You can buy them the night of the show at the door. It's an all-ages event. Uh, kids can come. The kids get in free. And by kids, I, I mean, I guess, everybody under 13, I guess. Uh, it's going to be a great time. It's the Philly Beer Week. we got a bunch of different beers on tap on the roof. The fish tacos are fantastic. It's going to be a special event. If you're in this area, if you're in the Philadelphia area, if you're a fan of Whole Foods, make sure you're there on the dance floor. So, um, this week has been really interesting. Actually, the last two weeks of my life have been really interesting. But we'll get to that in a moment. Let's get some backstory real quick. So, um, I believe, let's see here. Probably six years ago, I start to hear rumors that there's a film coming out, a documentary, an authorized documentary on Kurt Cobain. Uh, we've done a couple Kurt casts here on the Bobcast, and you all know how I feel about that music and that time and what it meant to me. So, obviously, you know, I tracked this film. I tracked this film for quite a long time. I'm very interested in the subject matter. I've read all the books, love the artwork, etc., so I guess, what was it, two years ago when they officially announced that, you know, the film will be coming out directed by Brett Morgan, who also did uh, Crossfire Hurricane, uh, the kids stay, the, excuse me, the kids stays in the picture, the Chicago 10, and um, this other documentary called June 17th, 1994, which was pretty interesting. So he's doing the film, and I think to myself, fantastic, great, because I really enjoyed Crossfire Hurricane. It was such a brilliant film capturing the Rolling Stones um, capturing them during that late time in the 60s, early 70s, when things were, you know, at a civil unrest, kind of like they are now. So I was very excited at the idea of something that also Francis Bean Cobain was producing. His uh, daughter that he left behind after committing suicide uh, April 1994. So the film, you know, starts to gain momentum. There's a trailer, it comes out, it's very moving, it's very emotional, uplifting, there's a poster comes out, and then, you know, the one with the montage of Heck uh, in yellow with Kurt in his uh, hunting cap, white sunglasses, etc. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited, you know, and about, I guess, let's see, right now, it's around late May, so I guess like in April, I think it was like maybe the week of April the 24th or something like that, I started reading stuff on the internet about the reviews, it being glowingly positive scoring 98% on rottentomatoes.com people really enjoying the film and then I start to read other stuff I start to read about a, a negative press conference Q&A that was held in Seattle and um, on this website that I look at you can check them out on Facebook it's called everybody loves our town it's a community-based I guess website based around this novel that came out on the town of Seattle so yeah, I'm going to read to you guys what's going on here, okay? So this is a letter um, to explain her point of view. She was friends with Kurt. Um, I guess they went to college together. But I'm just going to read it to you verbatim, okay? So here we go. I'm ready to explain my point of view about the film Montage of Heck. 
When I was originally contacted about this movie years ago, I thought it sounded like a good idea. It was pitched to me as the Kurt movie, where he got to tell his story in his own words, and it was suggested that it would minimize the cliches about his life. Over the last three years, I've gone out of my way to assist and support the people making Montage of Heck. They have had more access and resources than anyone else making a film on the subject, and yet the final product, in my opinion, is both confusing and disappointing. I would like to dispel the unfortunate mythos surrounding Kurt's heroin use and subsequent death. I'm very sad when I meet young fans who idolize Kurt and think that shooting junk and self-destruction are necessary parts of the creative process. He had many productive happy years making art and music before fame. Courtney and heroin came into his life. Parentheses, they came in that order. Close parentheses. The film failed to show that while he was living in Olympia, he was surrounded by a large group of creative people who supported each other's art and challenged the status quo in revolutionary ways. He was just one of many very talented, brilliant people that were part of that scene. After he became famous, he often complained about feeling singled out and made efforts to bring other people from that group into the spotlight with him. Kurt was inclusive and believed in supporting the underdog. He often talked about politics and felt it was part of his job to support equal rights for women's and gays. Sadly, this movie continues to uphold the old myths about Kurt's life that were, in my opinion, originally invented to help make Courtney appear more sympathetic after the Vanity Fair article revealed that she was shooting heroin while pregnant. I believe this movie is from Courtney's point of view and is not very reflective of the person I remember Kurt to be. The director doesn't appear to identify with Kurt's position at all, but instead just repeats tired cliches about Kurt's life. An example of one of the most malicious myths the film features is the idea that he was destined to commit suicide because of his childhood scars. The director included many cringeworthy moments that would have been humiliating for Kurt, who was a sensitive person with a history of being ostracized and bullied. The film, Montage of Heck, feels voyeuristic, exploitative, and devoid of empathy. I expressed my viewpoint during the Q&A because in his interview after the film's Seattle premiere, the director invited the audience to give their opinion. I felt like the director didn't appear to have any empathy towards Kurt, but seemed very self-congratulatory about what, to me, was his manipulation of Kurt's family. I've waited for many years to do a book of my photographs because I did not want to exploit my friendship with Kurt. In Outcast and Innocence, photographs of the Northwest by Alice Wheeler share photographs of Kathleen Hanna and many other Northwest luminaries, places and events in an effort to give a more holistic and realistic view of our history. You can see some of my images here. Signed, Alice Wheeler. So yeah, that's something I read. And I was quite disturbed by it. I was just like, man, I've been waiting for a really long time for this film to come out. I really want to see how it's depicted. And I guess, what, I'm like two weeks out. Two weeks out before the premiere on HBO. I have a, a subscription for HBO, by the way. Um... I enjoy, I, I, I gotta be honest with you, on a tangent, I've given up on Game of Thrones way too much talking this year. I just couldn't, I found myself too much on the phone, too much distracted. So let me know, Bobcast listeners, if something really, really cool happens, like Red Wedding style. So yeah, I, I'm reading this stuff online, and um, my friend Ian Reed is, uh, he's out in Scotland, and you know, the film's been out there for a long time. He's texting me back and forth, we're gonna go see this show. There's talks about it being released into multiplexes across the America cinemas, you know, for the film to play. But it, there's nothing coming around towards uh, my house. 
So, you know, I, I got to wait. I got to wait to March the 4th, excuse me, May 4th. And uh, it's, it's just, you know, it's on my mind each day. I'm thinking to myself, you know, this, that, or whatever. So I decided, you know what, uh, I'm going to download it. I guess, technically speaking, I'm going to illegally download this film because I want to judge it for myself. I want to sit by myself, watch this film, and try to determine whether or not I also share this view of something I read on the, the internet, on Facebook. So I pick a night. I pick a night that I'm going to watch this film. Um, for some reason, you know, my wife, she just knew that I needed to watch it by myself, which was great because, I don't know, when I watch a film, like, I love just being able to soak it all in, you know? Like, uh, when a film comes out in the cinema that I'm really looking forward to, I just love being in a the theater alone, like, catching a matinee. And, you know, I know I'm going to get emotional during this because, you know, it was a big part of my life, you know, 1994. It's just, you know, looking back at it, it's just, it's difficult, you know what I mean? Because it, like, defined, I guess, our generation, who I am, right? What the Bobcast is all about, you know what I mean? Vandalism is as beautiful as a rock in a cop's face. The sticker on Kurt Cobain's guitar that is depicted in posters across millions and millions of people's homes. Yes. This was a big part of me. Does it mean that I want to throw a rock in a cop's face? No, but like I remember seeing that sticker and being like, okay, he's into that, but he's also into yeah, sticking up for homosexual people or gay people or lesbians. And when I was growing up, it was like thought as as being something, you know, taboo or excuse me, just the devil's seed, if you will, to be gay. So when I heard him talking about that, then I saw once, I think uh, on Saturday Night Live, they French kissed each other, and I was blown away. And it opened my eyes up to a lot of things, a lot of different ways of looking at life. So, you know, I get myself all prepared, and, you know, I just, I, I hit play. You know, I had downloaded it from the internet. Yeah, definitely. I uh, was jumping the gun. So, um, the film comes on, you know, and goes through Kurt's uh, early childhood years. And you see a really nice painted picture of what his life was like. Him playing the guitar, him playing with his toys, being with his family, etc. And you get to know his parents, and then you eventually learn that, yeah, Kurt uh, suffered, you know, the sadness of a divorce. And then he was thrown around. And probably now, I guess, like, what, a half hour into it. And I'm digging it, you know what I mean? The soundtrack's great. Uh, the effects are fantastic, the way it, you know, spans across uh, the screen with his artwork, sculptures, etc., and you know it, it's it's an emotional roller coaster because like you you it's like you know what the the ending's going to be but you're forced to watch it you know that it's going to end terribly because you know the story. Uh, so you know it, it does a fantastic job of going through his early childhood years, moving into adolescence, him starting to become the artist that he wants to be. Uh, a fantastic animated sequence where he smokes a joint and uh, learns to get high and. You know, this is my way to escape. And then this whole sequence that I need, I never read about in um, the both unauthorized documentaries and Heavier Than Heaven. I never heard about them, them going over to a special education type student, somebody who was a little retarded, and, um, you know, messing with her because they knew her at school or something. It, it really, it was disturbing, you know what I mean? Because... You felt for him because he was living in such a tiny, tiny town. And I think I kind of felt that way growing up, too, because Country Hawken is the whole wide world when you're growing up. Country Hawken is the whole world, if you will. So, 
yeah, I'm digging it, man. You know, and then he starts playing with Chris, and they start playing in the band, and it's just an amazing experience watching Nirvana grow. And I was surprised with the way that the director handled it because it just kind of happened all of a sudden. There wasn't, um, I don't think there was any music awards, like uh, speeches or anything like that used. There was some significantly new footage I haven't seen, and there was some footage I, I, I have seen. If you've never seen Live Tonight, it's sold out. I definitely recommend checking out that. I think it's on DVD now. But, you know, and then, you know, obviously, Nevermind comes to fruition and the band goes, you know, global, global sensation. And then, I guess, the second half of the film, as we're breaking into Act 2, it just goes extremely dark. And it goes extremely dark because you start to see, you know, his drug use. And you see the the relationship that he had with Courtney Love and the love that they two shared in an apartment. Uh, true story here on the Bobcast. When the Downtown Harvest first moved to L.A. in 2004, my next-door neighbors, and God help me, I can't remember their name, but she was a short woman with dark hair, and he was a tall, kind of goofy-looking guy, and they rented the practice spot next to Downtown Harvest. And they loved Nirvana, and they had actually rented the apartment that all the home videos were filmed in. And now I think the apartment's up on some sort of website where you can rent it too. But these people uh, I thought of definitely during the film and how much they enjoyed Kurt's music, his legacy. And then things go for the nosedive, the end. You know it's coming. You know that you know he's going to take his life in April, and you know that the whole story's just going to go down you know, in flames once again for you. So it was a really dark ending. Um... It was hard to process. It was a work day night. And I'm like bawling my eyes out on like a Wednesday evening. Like how am I going to, you know, get to work tomorrow? Because I was pretty disturbed by it. You know, like just brought back a lot of memories of how I felt. So, yeah, it, it was it was difficult. So before I go to bed, I'm laying in my bed and I decide to fire off a tweet. Because Twitter is so much fun. Um, you know, sometimes like you try to, you, you idolize somebody's worker, you want to work with them professionally, you'll send them a tweet and you won't get retweeted back. You won't get favored because that's how the internet is. And that's what the internet's become. Friend requests are now like, you know, I'm trolling you. Um, you know, it, it's lost its luster. A friend request is a lot more today than it was 15 years ago. So I fire off a tweet and I have it here cause I saved it. I'm going to read it to the Bobcast listeners. <clears throat> Robert Cahill IV at Bobcast Pod. I just illegally downloaded the movie like Kurt would have wished. I'm beyond moved, and I congratulate you on a job well done. And uh, I fired it off. I probably didn't read it. You know what I mean? I wasn't really functioning at that point because I was overcome with grief, sadness, loss, etc. So I was amazed and surprised when. Within 30 seconds, I was favorited and replied to by the director of Montage of Heck, Brett Morgan. You can imagine my uh, my surprise. So he sends off uh, this message to me in response to on Twitter. At Bobcast Pod, if that's how you want to justify it, whatever. I cannot make these kinds of films if the financiers don't recoup. So automatically I'm thinking, Jesus, he didn't get what I was trying to say. He's thinking... That I'm trying to, like, sell these DVD copies down, you know, on South Street on the corner with a really, really bad cover. And um, 
The next thing that completely blows me away, and let me go into my phone here and bring it up. So it goes from uh, favoriting to replying to uh, direct messaging. So these are text messages from my phone from the director, Brett Morgan. Dude, why do you think it's okay to steal my film? Who's supposed to pay for it? Me? Who's going to finance my next one if this one loses? So my next response at 10.49 on 4.29.15 is, I have an HBO account as well. I just couldn't wait. I plan on spreading the word. In response, from Brett Morgan, I don't make shit. It's not about lining my pockets. I just need big budgets to make this kind of movie. To which I reply, it was amazing. You really captured him. Trying to change the tide of the conversation. What's your phone number? I'll explain my position, Brett Morgan writes. To which I respond with, can you come on my podcast? Call me. You ain't get my number. So yeah, I shoot off the phone number. My phone number. I'm laying in bed on Wednesday evening. I have to go teach kids on Thursday morning, by the way. Uh, so he calls me. I automatically pick up. There's a shuffle in the voice. And all this would be... Uh, I don't have any documentation of this conversation, so you're just going to have to take my word for it. If there's any fabrications, Brett, I do apologize. But from what I do recall, uh, it starts off with me introducing myself and you introducing yourself. And you pretty much repeated yourself, I think. Uh, why do you think it's okay to you know steal the film? And to which I responded, you know, I just couldn't wait. I really wanted to watch this film. You know, how do you feel about coming on my podcast? To which he responds, hmm, let me see. Tomorrow I have MSNBC... The Today Show, Opie and Anthony, some other radio station. I can't remember what else he said. And then, why would I want to come on your podcast? And I said uh, something along the lines, well, I mean, all those shows sound pretty great. But, I mean, even on the Today Show, they gave him just a short blurb. He could have came on the Bobcast and he could have talked about how he feels about being judged in the media for directing this film, etc. And then we start talking about HBO but it's not me who's talking about HBO. He starts talking about HBO saying that he was pissed off that HBO wanted to have him come and do what a 6.45 to 9 o'clock encore presentation or something like that. Coincidentally, I saw uh, something in the media that there is something like that, perhaps on Twitter. And I don't know what to expect. I'm like, I can't even believe, like, I got. I wish that I had the, my microphone running, you know what I mean? Like, I, I didn't have the capability in the room next to me here, in the lounge, staring at the Ouija board. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm, like, livid. I, you know, I, I don't know how this is happening. I, I can't even believe this is happening because it's so surreal that the director of the film that I've been tracking for years is now calling me on a Wednesday in May. And I can't remember the end of the conversation, Brett, but I know I tried to explain my position once more, and you continue to get more and more frustrated. And you did say to me that, you know, I could call you the following week to come on the show. I did call this week. You didn't pick up, and they sent off a couple other text messages. I sent to him, uh, Art should be viewed as its creator intended. I apologize for offending you. I wish you the best, and I will be watching on the 4th. And then he writes back, Thanks, I bleed for my work. To which I write back, Can we bleed together? I've seen the film a handful of times. I know we had a heated conversation, but I'd love for you to come on the show. Exemplify your work. 
show them a couple different examples, you know. Because, you know, despite the fact, ladies and gentlemen, that the director of Montage of Heck, Brett Morgan, kind of attacked me on my phone. I'm not mad at him. And I'm not judging the film because the film actually brought about real emotion from me. Something that maybe I needed to get out of me. I needed a release. Reading Alice Wheeler's note, yes, it does still make me think, but you know what? We're never going to know. We never know what, gonna, what would happen. The conspiracy theorists can always rally with the ones who think that he had just killed himself. But something Brett said in the media really disturbed me. He said something about, I guess, the people who are conspiracy theorists being uh, Holocaust deniers or something like that. It's not verbatim here, ladies and gentlemen, but there was a lot of negativity surrounded, uh, surrounding my conversation with the director. I don't think he's going to be calling me, and that's okay, because that's how the story goes. That's real journalism. That's putting yourself into the story. And I guess I put myself into the story because I was so invested into the life of, life of Kurt Cobain that maybe I needed to, you know, own that film. I needed to watch that film before it came out because I wanted to see it before the rest of at least the United States of America saw so, because it's there's so much, you know, controversy always surrounding the death of Kurt Cobain. Do I believe Alice Wheeler? I, you know, I believe both sides of the story. Did he make this film in Courtney Love's POV? I'm not really sure. You know, I, I can't answer these things. Brett did say that he would make himself accessible for, uh, you know, journalists, uh, real people who want to get the story out. But he has still to this day, excuse me, this night, not responded back to any of my texts. So, if you'd like, Brett, I'd love to have an open dialogue here on the Bobcast. Let's take a listen to a piece of Kurt's art here on the Bobcast.
back here on the bobcast with none other my childhood friend trainer james wilson so t tonight on the bobcast we're talking about the film montage of heck let's hear your review well i didn't watch the whole thing but i probably seen like an hour and a half of the first two hours and i did like like all the different drawings and things they did how they worked that into um like the documentary but when it kind of got to the Courtney Love stuff and him, it just, I don't know, it seemed to get like, kind of weird and just kind of drag out. And I think like how we were talking about earlier, how it seems like she was just like, just really bad for him and just, you know, kind of was part of his like demise with drugs and things. Um, just, I don't know, it just kind of took a bad turn. So, but I didn't finish it, so I look forward to seeing the last half hour. Yeah, the last half hour is pretty deep. I mean, uh, yeah. What else did I mean? What else did you pull from the film? I mean, anything you, is like a revelation about Kurt. Um, I mean, I knew he was like a rough upbringing, but damn, he was so tormented and like, I mean, that scene where he talks about like uh, he went through the train tracks and like put two pieces, like two pieces of concrete on his chest so he could lay down and like let the train hit him, but then the train like went on like the train, the track next to him. I mean, that was just just to see how tormented he really was. He's just like kind of. Depressing. It made a lot of sense, you know? Yeah. It's depressing and made a lot of sense just to go into, like, you know, his writing and just, like, a lot of things that, like, inspired him, you know, in, like, a wrong way, really. But, you know, he never was, like, really, he bounced around so much between, like, mom, dad, grandparents, like, aunt, you know, so he just never really had a place, you know, and it's probably just, like, the, the best thing that could have happened to him was just having a home, you know what I mean? Yeah. Just having a part of the family, so. I think, I think that's the key to survival, I guess, for humans is family. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what? You yeah, know. no, totally. I mean, it's like that hierarchy you need to, and you want to feel safe, you want to be nourished, you want to feel loved, and, you know, it seems like you miss out on all those things, and, you know, and then when you started smoking weed, you finally found, like, some peace, you know what I mean? So, yeah, what is it about uh, cannabis sativa? Anyway, um, you know, for me uh, on the film, you know, a couple of the things that stood out for me was the stuff from the beginning, like with the dog running on the street and Kurt's filming it, and then like how he made that uh, that movie about the monsters like we made. Should we talk about that real quick? Should we talk about the film that we made, I guess, in what, 1994, was it? The same year that Kurt passed away? Which, did we make the uh, Orville Adisha? Or? No, no, this is Indiana Chick, and this is, yeah, the Orville Adisha. 
Yeah, we made this film, okay? Uh, my brother playing Indiana Chick, a version of Indiana Jones, if you will. We go to Algeria to find the Lost Orb of Lubicia, which is a skeleton from the Magic Castle in Walt Disney World that I still have to this day in front of my HDTV. So <laughs> this film also includes the evil Lubis, which is a nickname we had for TJ back in the day, which I have, I think it, Lubis is the name I gave to that secretion that came through your nose and your mouth at one time. So anyway, my brother, my brother has to like somehow get through the evil Lubus. But before Chick actually trains in the room with the whip, <laughs> listening to Nirvana, dude. He's listening to. Uh, let me think here. He's listening to uh, Sliver, I think. Or no, he's li- he's listening to Dive, Dive, Dive with me. <laughs> yeah, man, that was just great times. Yeah, thanks, Sam, for letting me uh, direct you like Spielberg there and Nine Taylor. But yeah, that was a great yeah, film, dude. We, I think I, I, I mean, we got to get that on the internet. You know what I mean? We got to get my brother to put that on YouTube. I think he has the copies of that. And then he kills me by. We're on the couch, like struggling, and then it looks like I fall off the couch, and then you either drop like you like stuff pillows and things make it look like a body. You either drop it out your bedroom window, or you drop it from the attic. Oh yeah, yeah, the dummies, dude. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's good. Cool. It's good stuff, man. Yeah. But yeah, that film also was, uh, you know, right around the time that you know Kurt had passed away. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is amazing that it's been twenty-one years. I was just thinking about that, thinking about him being forty-eight years old. Just, I don't know. Like I said, eighty-four doesn't. I can't imagine him being old. I can't imagine us being thirty-five, T. I understand. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. I I remember, you know, like we were 17 like it was yesterday, dude. Yeah. Led Zeppelin, every day in the, every day on the way to school, we would listen to one song over and over again. T, what was it? Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. Let's take a listen to that here on the Bobcast.
All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was a remix by Led Zeppelin here on the Bobcast. Make sure you come out May 29th. Top of the world party, Whole Foods, Taco Truck, and Plymouth Meeting. We got bands, we got DJs, we got prizes, we got, you know, just an all-around good time. It's all ages, so bring your kids. 21 The Drink, make sure you got your ID at the bar. Thanks for tuning in. This has been another episode of Bobcast.